Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Last week, the IPCC released their synthesis report. We are at the tip of the tipping point. A summary of thousands of pages of finding from three reports released over the last few years, reiterating the seriousness and immediacy of the problem. The world's leading climate scientists say this decade will be crucial. So we can still avoid the worst effects if we act now. But some degree of warming is locked in. How can we predict what will happen in different ecosystems as they warm? Well... One way is to heat them up. Kia ora, naumai haramai ki te au hurihanga. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, ko Clerk and Cannon thēnei. We're interested in how alpine ecosystems will respond to climate change. Dr Julie Delip is a senior lecturer at the School of Biological Sciences at Tehiranawaka, Victoria University of Wellington. And she's also part of a worldwide research collaboration the WARM project. So WARM is an acronym. It stands for Warming and Removals in Mountains. And it's a network of 10 countries, so 20 experimental sites. And I run the New Zealand site of WARM. 20 sites, because in each country there is a high and low elevation site on the same mountain with an altitude difference of at least 500 metres. We're currently standing at the New Zealand high elevation site. We're at about 1610 metres under beautiful Koro Reo Pehu, standing right beside us in all its glory. If you didn't know this place, in fact, many people say to me, um, why would you work up there? There are no plants there. If you didn't know this place well and you hadn't spent time on your hands and knees, you would think that it was just a moonscape. It's rocky, it's mostly grey and brown and shades of red in the slope of the mountainside up here. But between all those little rocks and in the cracks are little patches of green, and those are the plants that we work on. It's far from lush. We've spent the night on the mountain at Tequino Alpine Lodge, having rumbled up the rough track from the desert road the day before. From there, it's a half an hour walk across the lunar landscape to get to the research site. Dark volcanic rocks and gravel crunch underfoot. It's a flawless January summer's day, and this only seems to heighten the moonscape effect, kind of turning up the contrast between the grey and black rocky surface and the bright blue sky backdrop. Behind us, the mountain tops are sprinkled with snow. And below us, the Rangapo Desert Valley stretches out to the Kaimanawa Forest. And in front of us is a strange sight. Hexagonal arrangements of clear perspex panels dotted on the landscape that are actually little time travel machines. We warm by using these little hexagonal open-top chambers that are basically little greenhouses that look like UFOs that have landed on top of the plants. They increase soil and air temperature by about two degrees over the growing season. And we chose that because it's in line with climate projections for alpine sites on average globally um, for the year 2070. These chambers have been here for eight years, and each year Julie and her students have been carefully monitoring them to see what's happening to the plants. We have kind of two big questions. One is, will climate change change biodiversity in mountains? And the second one is, will climate change make alpine ecosystems 
a net source of carbon to the atmosphere or a net sink. So we're really interested in how the plants are photosynthesizing, whether they're growing up and taking more carbon out of the atmosphere, or whether they're becoming stressed and growing more slowly and dying back under warming, in which case they would be respiring or breathing, like we do, carbon back to the atmosphere. And so we want to be sure that we understand the balance between that carbon uptake through photosynthesis and that carbon loss through respiration. And not only will this research address these questions for this specific site here in Ruhapehu, it will also feed into that 10-country warm network. Remember Julie said that WARM is an acronym? Well, the W is for warming, so the little hexagonal chambers. But the R is for removal, a second investigation in this experiment. The second treatment is to remove the dominant species. We remove the dominant species so that we can change plant community composition because many of these drivers of global environmental change, they alter the relative abundance of certain plant species and often the dominant species changes. So, for example, when you have an invasive species, it can very quickly become dominant in an ecosystem. And um, these relative changes in the dominance of different species have big effects on biodiversity of rare species, especially, but also on carbon cycling. So feedbacks between the ecosystem and the atmosphere, carbon losses and gains. Dominance sounds kind of negative, like it's bullying the other plants around. But this isn't necessarily the case. This is a bit of plant ecology that might not be generally known called the stress gradient hypothesis. And this is the idea that at low elevations, you know, the climate is relatively benign. There's lots of water, there's good soil, fertile soil down there. The wind speeds are slow-ish and, and plants are happy. And so when you have two plants growing side by side in that environment, they're pretty much competing to get as much space as they can. But as you move upslope, up a mountainside, the environment becomes harsher and fewer species can live up here in these very high wind speeds, extremely cold temperatures, extremely dry, right? Steep young soils with rocky soils like this don't hold on to water well. And the growing season is very short because they're under snow much of the year. So those very harsh environmental conditions mean that few species can live up here and the ground is mostly rock. (laughs) And the relationship between two plant species changes. Between a dominant species and a smaller species is often that the dominant species shelters the the smaller species from those high wind speeds and, and drought stress and acts as a bit of a nurse or a canopy for that species to recruit to. So Julie and the team have identified the most prevalent plant in each area And for the removal plots, they've taken it out of the plot space and continue to clear it out each year. Then they've monitored how the other plants are doing. Do they do worse? This would mean that the dominant was actually helping them, being a nice shelter plant. Or do they do better? This means that the dominant plant was in fact competing and bullying the others into line. So... There are warming plots with UFO hexagons, removal plots with the main plant taken out. And then we apply those treatments in combination, so warming and removal, and then we have a control. So that's four treatments, warming, removal, warming and removal, and control. And because it's an experiment, we have to repeat it a whole bunch of times, so we do eight of each of those four treatments, and that means that there are 32 plots at our high elevation site where we're standing right now, and at our low elevation site, which we'll go to this afternoon. 
In this, same experimental setup is being applied to the other nine mountain sides in the warm network. But each side is different in terms of what you get there. Janelle Wienendahl is a research assistant in Julie's lab, and she helps out regularly on fieldwork. There's a lot of pretty, gorgeous species out here, and you just don't see them until you have to see them. So I spent some time last summer building a species guide for this project, so getting really acquainted with all of my favourite plants. <laughs> and that's what you guys were looking at last night, was your species guide. Yeah, we were going through, and um, Julie calls it spring amnesia, so... Uh, reacquainting ourselves with all of the the species that we come across in the plots. Do you have some faves? I mean, is it like asking what your favorite children oh, gosh. are? <laughs> so many. Um, my favorite plant at oh, I've got a favorite plant for every site. But there are a couple of different carnivorous plants at low elevation, so we'll go and see those. Those are really neat little sundews, and something we call a fairy apron, which is a teeny tiny little flower. Is when we're looking at the flowers, we're talking about, you know, sometimes a couple millimeters wide. So very tiny little, little plants. So carnivorous plants later on, lower down. But at this site, the plants are battling all those elements that Julie mentioned before. Sun, wind, cold and lack of moisture. Up here, there are a lot of native and endemic plants. And the general theme seems to be stay small, grow slowly and go with white flowers to maximise your pollination potential. This is Veronica spatulata. It's one of my favourite plants at the site. Very, well, at high elevation, it's a very brownish-reddish plant, so it blends in with the rocks. But when it flowers, it bursts out with these white blooms. Um, so it's very inconspicuous, and then suddenly, for a couple of weeks in January, you just see these white patches everywhere, so it's beautiful. <laughs> It's so cute. I mean, it's just sitting on a little pile of stones, really. Yeah. And those, I mean, how big are those flowers? They're just a couple um, of millimetres. Yeah, maybe up to a centimetre wide, some of the bigger ones, but yeah, very tiny. And the little flowering plants do stand out, but with a quick scan around, there does seem to be two plants that are mostly running the show. Bristle tussock? a Rytidosperma cetifolium, which looks like a really tough, wiry grass, and mountain snowberry, Galtheria colensoi. So that's a very tough, leathery-leaved, slow-growing evergreen ericaceous species that's um, native to New Zealand. And then a smattering of few other species that can occur around them. Julie and her team have found 25 different plant species here. So that's what they were swatting up on last night with Janelle's field guide. How to recognise them and what their code names are. Because, unsurprisingly, saying Galtheria colensoi every time you come across a plant tends to slow things down. So each plant is assigned a six-letter code based on their scientific name so that they can be quickly identified as they assess the biomass of the plot. Which sounds like this. Galcaltu. Gull call three, gull call three, right set one. Gull call, the native Galtheria colensoi, is the dominant plant up here. So in the non-removal plots, it definitely dominates. And the removal plots do look a bit sparse with it taken out. What Julie and Janelle are doing right now is a pin drop survey for biomass. What we do is we place a grid over the ground surface and the grid has marked intersections, little red and white bits of string. And then we take a pin and we place them at each of the intersections and we count 
what species and how many times it touches the pin. And that allows us to have a count of number of pin hits per species per plot. And in other plots, we've related that to the, the individual species above ground biomass. So we have these equations that we've made where we've done the pin dropping on many, many plots. We've cut out the plants um, from those plots and dried them in an oven and weighed their above ground biomass. And so we can use this as a non-destructive way to measure plant growth in our plots over time. So this is kind of a shortcut because they've already done the maths. Because the pin drop only assesses a section of the plot, they also do separate surveys of every species present with rough estimates of the percentage area of the plot each species is covering. Today, they are also taking another biomass measurement, NVDI, Normalized Difference Vegetation Index, which really is a light measurement of how green an area is. Julie is holding something that looks like a handheld barcode scanner thingy that you would use in a supermarket. But the plots themselves aren't uniformly green. Some have big rocks in them and then little patches of vegetation. So they take 12 measurements across the plot to get an average. But actually, in these plots, there's not a whole heap of green going on lots of the plants are kind of reddy brownish. Those colours, the reds and the purples and those almost brownie shades are uh, carotenoids and xanthophylls that plants make as um, in response to stress, to solar stress. So that's actually bad for their photosynthetic equipment, for their chloroplasts. So they make these red pigments to protect the chloroplasts, but the chloroplasts are still there. They're green and they're underneath those protective pigments. So the green seeker still sees that those chloroplasts, even though the plants look red. It's a tough life up here. So does an increase in temperature make life a little bit easier? Well, that's one of the questions that Julie and the team want to answer. If you dial up the soil and air temperature, maybe the plants will grow faster. More plant growth equals more photosynthesis equals more carbon out of the atmosphere, right? Not that simple, says Julie. That's why they also take other measurements. We calculate net ecosystem carbon exchange. So we measure carbon flux between the ecosystem, the plants, and the soils, and the atmosphere. Um, and that balance of whether carbon is being taken up by the plants or respired, breathed out by the plants back to the atmosphere. So it's very important to understand how ecosystems are responding to warming and to other global change factors like species invasions. There's a lot going on here. A lot of questions, a lot of measurements. And on top of the carbon flux and the biomass, there are also mushroom-like data collectors in the plots, taking regular measurements of the soil and air temperature and humidity. They have eight years of data now and are starting to figure some things out. On this particular site, it looks like the plants do not like warming. There's only one winner when you heat things up. A native, low-growing, prickly shrub. Everything else tends to struggle. Looking at the bigger picture, they've recently done some analysis of the biomass changes and carbon flux across the full 20 sites, both the high and low elevation sites across the 10 countries. What we find is that the plants are growing up. There is more plant biomass, but they're not taking up more carbon from the atmosphere, despite that they're bigger. So that was really surprising to us. And so we looked into the data um, in more detail. And what we find is that even though the plants are bigger, they're also respiring a lot more. And so 
even though the plants are growing up and they're bigger and the sites are looking greener when we warm them, there's not more carbon taken up by the ecosystem. It's about the same under warming and in the control plots. So that's kind of the big preliminary finding that we're hoping to publish this year. Has there been a change in the diversity that you've seen in those warming plots? Yes, there is, and but it's site dependent. So we see different sites, even at our high and low elevation sites, we see different responses of different species um, in New Zealand, and that's true around the world. Does that make it a really difficult part of that around the world comparison? You know, the plants that are here are going to be very different to in all of those other countries. Absolutely. The biodiversity question is the much tougher nut to crack um, because it depends so much on the local biology. You know, our native flora and fauna in New Zealand is highly endemic. It occurs here and nowhere else on Earth. And so we need to do the work to find out whether it will survive climate change. And nobody can do that work for us. We can't take results from China or the US or Sweden or Switzerland and apply them to our situation here. We need to figure it out for ourselves. A rumble back down the track and we are near the low elevation site at 1,070 metres elevation. But first, a little plant spotting detour. Janelle, you found me a carnivorous plant. Yes, I did. Uh, this is Drosera arcturi, um, which is more common on the South Island, and we found it last summer, so we didn't know it was around these parts until then, so very exciting discovery. It looks like a collection of little red bristle bushes with many tiny, shiny droplets. All of our droseras are sundews, so they have strap-like leaves with little glandular hairs on them that excrete a tiny little droplet of polysaccharide, so sugary water, and that glistens in the light, and tiny little, mostly fungus gnats and other tiny flies will be attracted to the, the shininess, and then they get stuck. And then the Drosera rolls up the leaf and excretes digestive enzymes and sucks the nitrogen out of um, those insects. And they do this because they live in really nitrogen-poor soils, so they can live in places like bogs, or um, river margins, wet places, um, where there isn't a lot of nitrogen in the soil. I love the idea of these badass tiny plants carving a niche for themselves by evolving a way to catch insects to survive. There is seven native species of Drosera, and the other type of carnivorous plant that you find in Aotearoa are bladderworts, of which there are three native species. And there's one of these nearby. So these fairy aprons are another, they're a bladderwort, they're another carnivorous plant, and we don't, we don't like to reveal the location because there are crazy people who collect rare native plants and then sell them on the international trade, and that's a big threat. The collection of rare and endangered species is a big threat to biodiversity conservation in our country and others. I, I didn't realise that was the case for plants. I yeah. knew it was for things like geckos and yeah. skinks. Yeah, also orchids and and other carnivorous plants particularly are sought after. It's not legal, but it's done. We get to a little boggy area where water has collected. There's a mix of different plants in there, but sticking up out of the shallow water and mix of brown, green and red leaves are these slender red stalks with tiny purple flowers, like cute, delicate purple periscopes. 
so it has little bladders uh, on its roots. You can't see the leaves at all. It makes these little bladders and it puts up this tiny little purple flower that's very beautiful. And how does it trap and eat what it needs to? Yeah, so I think I, the, those bladders are underground, so I presume that they're eating soil invertebrates, so things that live in the soil. But then they also live in really wet areas, so maybe things like amoebas and water-dwelling animals that are microscopic. <laughs> Detour done, we head to the area where the plots are. So now we've arrived at the low elevation warm site. We're back amongst the UFOs. That's right. You can see them scattered throughout. <laughs> but it's a very different landscape to that high elevation site. Yeah. Here you, it's not rocky. There are very few rocks around. We see kind of a sandy substrate blown around by the wind on the desert road. And then way more vegetation. Mm. Most of what we're looking at are shrubs um, interspersed with the, the tussock grasses. So like Kynacloa rubra, our red tussock, is a very abundant species here. And then also lots and lots of heather, the invasive shrub that's so common all over the landscape. So I guess for the pin drops, there's going to be a lot more of those calling out of codes in this area. Yeah, lots to count, more species, more hits. It takes longer down here. And in terms of the dominant species that you've removed at some of the sites down here, what is that? So that's actually the invasive heather at this site. And that's an interesting comparison because heather is native to Europe and was introduced um, to New Zealand in the 19-teens or 20s. And it's become invasive throughout Tongariro National Park. But it's a member of the Erica family, Ericaceae, the same family that our native species at the high elevation site, the Galtheria calenzoi, is a member of. So we're, we're comparing the removal at two elevations of two species in the same family, which is a nice comparison. But one of them definitely should be here and one of them should not. That's right. Heather was deliberately introduced here in an attempt to recreate Scottish grouse moors, but it swiftly took over. It's an interesting twist in the warm experiments because it will help the team to answer a lot of questions around what will happen to the heather in a warming future. Will it become more of a pest? And what if you were able to remove it? Okay, so this is a heather removal plot, plot 26. We call it the plot of death. And we call it that because it took three people a whole day to get all of the heather out of this plot. It was 100% cover. There was virtually nothing else in the plot except for a little bit around the edges. And as you can see, this plot is not denuded anymore. So after eight years of treatment, we've had the recruitment of several different species of grasses and some really tiny little shrubs that have come in. So we know that removing the heather does allow the native species to respond, to colonize and to come back. But it just takes a while. They're still tiny. And so these effects are not yet significant in our data. We can't say that it's statistically significant, but they're coming along (laughs) and there's a lot of variability between the plots. So we hope in time to be able to say quantitatively that that there's an increase in native species biomass when you remove heather. Yeah, it's still 
mostly bare, I've got to say. And after eight years, I'm quite surprised. But is that just the nature of the difficult environment that these plants are living in? Absolutely. So alpine plants are adapted to grow slowly because they live in a really harsh environment. If they were too uh, exuberant, <laughs> they, they would just get knocked off by a hard frost or a late snow in spring. And so they have to be very conservative. They're adapted to grow slowly. To combat the heather takeover, in 1996, its natural enemy from Scotland, the heather beetle, was released as a biocontrol agent into the park. But the beetle has taken a long time to establish. It's kind of only really got going in the last five years or so. Now there are signs of more beetle outbreaks, where the population will spike and the beetles will eat through large areas of heather before moving on to the next area. This enables a neat experimental setup for one of Julie's PhD students, Jim Denial, who's looking at the influence of heather and the heather beetle interaction on soil carbon. So I guess what I'm trying to do is clarify the connection between how herbivory or insects that feed on plants alter carbon cycling in soils and alter how fast that carbon is released to the atmosphere. So I'm using this system with heather and heather beetles because it's really simple. Heather only is eaten by heather beetles, and heather interacts with a particular fungus in the soil. And so I'm going to see if that beetle alters those interactions with the fungus in the soil, and if that in turn alters how fast that carbon is cycling through that soil. His plots are just to the side of the main warm area, a bit smaller and centred around either a healthy heather plant, one that's been chewed through by beetles, or a native plant from the same family. And each of these plots, you can see a little PVC pipe um, that's been already installed into the soil, so I don't have to disturb the soil whenever I take measurements. I can put the chambers right over top of those PVC pipes, and that'll measure how much carbon dioxide is coming out. And I'll also be taking soil samples to analyze later in the lab to see how the soil microbial communities, um, fungus and bacteria, may be changing as a result of that herbivory. Also looking at carbon flux at both the plant community and individual plant level in the warm sites, is another PhD student, Indira Leon Garcia. I'm more interested in the differences between the invasive and native species and and how the invasive species can have traits that allow them to live in this kind of stressful environment and that can give give them like an advantage over the native species that we have here. One of the things that Indira does is track the carbon flux of individual plants in response to heating up across the day to see what changes as the leaves of the plant warm up, as well as using the chambers similar to Jim to look at carbon flux at a community and soil level. She also uses a smaller setup that she can put just around some leaves to zone into what that particular plant is doing. So I put like a fixed amount of carbon in that inside that chamber and then if the plant is doing photosynthesis, then it's taking that carbon. Or if it's respiring, it's producing more. So I can know if it's actually doing photosynthesis or respiration. And I can kind of compare the species, so the native species, with the invader, um, Heather in this case. So that will help me figure it out if the plants can acclimate their photosynthesis and respiration to the treatment, to the warming treatment. Jim and Indira also help on all of the warm plot monitoring. Today, they've both been checking all of the UFOs, which are locked together with cable ties and fixed down with strong rope or wire. 
they take a bit of a beating on these sites and so have to be constantly checked. Indira has also done analysis on the New Zealand site data. She did the work that showed just that one winner at the high elevation site. And then at low elevation, we found that with the warming of the plots, the invasive species, which is heather, is increasing. And that's reducing the cover of the subordinate species, the subordinate native species that we have, except for just one. So I would say at low elevation, the winner is actually heather. <laughs> and just most of the, the other subordinate species, the species are just decreasing in cover in general. Predicting what's going to happen in the future of any ecosystem is a difficult job. There'll be other things impacted by a warming climate that this experiment can't account for. Changes to weather patterns, for example. Plus, it's clear that the difference in mountain ecosystems across the world makes things tricky to generalise. But even within Aotearoa, Ruhapehu is quite unlike say, some alpine ecosystems of the South Island, which at the low elevation would be dominated by beech forest. There were several factors that Julie Dilip took into account when choosing a site, but an important one was the relationships that she built with Doc and Manafenua Nati Rangi. Through these, Julie hopes that their findings can help safeguard the future of this special place. It was really important to me that I did this work in a place that people cared about and they wanted to manage for conservation purposes. There is already momentum to preserve and restore these Rangipo desert ecosystems. So um, that's been a really important part of the whole project is having stakeholders that are eager to see the results, who want to know which species are going to be at risk in the future, who want to know what happens when we manage heather. You know, the, the heather beetle has been an ongoing project for nearly 30 years, but it's only now really establishing well and making the impacts that Doc had always hoped that it would. So, you know, what is the future post um, heather dominance? What are these systems going to look at, like? Are we just going to remove one weed and to have the next weed come in? Or how can we change the trajectory of these systems to conserve the native species? Thanks to Dr. Julie Dilip, Indira Leon Garcia, Jim Denal, and Janelle Wienendal from Teheranawaka, Victoria University of Wellington. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon, with help from Liz Garten and Ellen Rikers. Sound engineering was by Phil Benj, and Tim Walken is executive producer of podcast and series at RNZ. The show's website is at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld, and there'll be photos and links related to the story if you want to learn more. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook, where we are at RNZ Science. Te nā koe i mai. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. Kia pai tō wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.